Well, as our custom in Pine Ridge House and Genesis House, let's stand and read the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 25. <laughs> Ephesians 5, 25. <laughs> let's read. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Lord, as um, Al taught us this morning, Dr. Kopich, about the about Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and how your word is profitable for re- for rebuke, for correction, and equipping us for uh, training in righteousness. Lord, we are here to uh, have that done in our lives right now. We are looking for you to uh, rebuke us where necessary, to give provide correction to us, and uh, to train train us up in righteousness and in our roles. Um, as husbands in relationship to our wives and for the single men in here who are going to be potentially husbands one day um, we just um, look for your guidance and for your spirit to to uh, help us through this session give me clarity of thought help me not to say anything that would be of hindrance to the, to the men today and that your spirit would guide me only into truth and nothing else but the truth we look forward to our time together in Christ's name well, today, uh, men, we're going to uh, be looking at God's instruction for how a husband is to love his wife. And I thought it'd be suitable for this weekend, considering that this is a men's houseboat retreat and not a woman's houseboat retreat. And that all of us in here are already married, or if you're single, you're well on your way to that being a potential future for you. I'm thinking of you in your teens who are approaching the dating age. Maybe some of you are in dating relationships already, and I'm just not sure about it. Or maybe your parents don't even know about it. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm also thinking of... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking also of uh, you in your 20s, mid-20s, who are also maybe single and are potentially thinking about a future person. So while today's session will definitely be geared towards the men, in terms of the married men, I don't want you to think just because you're single, this won't apply to you. It's better to receive God's instruction and training now, so that when you enter into a relationship, either in dating or in marriage, you're prepared. Uh, You would never want a soldier to go into battle without doing basic training. (laughs) They'll get their butts kicked, right? So you want to be prepared to how to handle a relationship with a female and when you get married in the future. So this is what we're going to look at today. 
And let's say you have the gift of singleness. Let's say you're not uh, someone, maybe God's giving that gift. And your marriage isn't in your uh, uh, future just because of that gift that God's given you. Uh, this will apply to you as well. Because you're going to bump shoulders with tons of men. And they're going to come to you one day and say, what do I do? I'm in this situation. How do I, get, how do I fix this between my, my wife and I? So it doesn't matter what position you're in. You can be single, you can have the gift of singleness, you can be married, you can be you're looking for a partner. This will all apply. So if we're going to discover then how a husband is to love his wife, I think we need to really start by asking a real fundamental question. A real fundamental question. And instead of me um, pro providing that question for you, I thought I'd let a theologian from the 1990s uh, provide you with that answer, or provide you with that question. And you, some of you will recognize him when I play this clip. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. <laughs> Anyway, there you go. All right. What is love? What is love? We laugh, but it's a fundamental question because love is not something that comes naturally to us as men. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, we've been confused about what love is and how to operate in it. And various things have influenced our thinking about love. Uh, our, the world's influenced our thinking about love. Our family of origin has affected the way we think about love. Our past wounds have affected the way we think about love. So if we're going to take Paul's command seriously about loving our wives, we need to address this fundamental question, what is love, from God's perspective. So let's dive into verse 25. The first thing that Paul wants us to understand as men, in terms of how to love a wife, is that our love, our love needs to be self-sacrificial. Our love needs to be self-sacrificial. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The key phrase here is that the Lord gave himself up for the church. He gave himself up. Paul's thinking of the cross when he died for us self-sacrificially as a substitute for our sins. So here we learn that the essence from from as husbands, from learning from Christ, is that our love is to be one of self-sacrifice. Just like the Lord was willing to lay down his life for us, we are to lay down our life for our wives. We have to put her interests, her desires, her needs ahead of our own. We're, we're to take a personal hit in our preferences in order to meet hers. It's a kind of love, then, that never asks the question, what's in it for me? But asks the question, what's in it for her? I was listening to a man named Charles Price. Many of you may know him. He's a fantastic uh, pastor in Toronto. And he, he, he had a great uh, one-liner that I heard him say at one point. He said, you know, when, when, when we read here that husbands are to give themselves up for their wives, often we husbands prefer that our wives give themselves up for us. <laughs> but what Paul is commanding us is something totally different, that we give ourselves up for her. Now, it's not a surprise then, because we have that sort of generally, the general rule for men is that we are more insensitive in terms of how love operates, that Paul then has to tell husbands three times in this passage to love their wives. He tells us three times to love their wives. Look at this with me in verse 25, right? Uh, um, husbands, love your wives. Look at verse 28. Husbands ought to love their wives. Verse 33. 
Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife. You see, the general rule for why he has to tell men to do this and not women, women are never told in this passage to love. They're only told to respect. But, so the only reason why men, I think, are told this as a general rule is that we don't know how to do it the way a woman naturally does. Women already know how to give themselves up, to do things for other people, to put other people ahead of themselves. They know how to put their own interests aside to seek the interests of others. You can see that in your own, in your own family with probably even you guys get ready for the houseboat. I bet your wives maybe had an integral role in getting you here, <laughs> right? And helping you get, you know, pack and thinking about what food you're going to have on the, on the bus or, or the bus, the car and everything, right? They, they made sure that you were well taken care of to get you here. They're used to thinking about other people. They're self-sacrificial in their love. And that's why Paul doesn't tell them to love, but he has to tell us to do so. So we are to love self-sacrificially, though, based on the fact that Christ has been our model. And he wants us to imitate him and what he did for us. But not only is our love to be self-sacrificial, there's one more key thing in this self-sacrifice. It's also to be unconditional. Our love is to be unconditional. And this is why the just as comparison is so important again. We are to love our wives just as Christ gave himself up for us. He unconditionally loved us. He didn't in two ways. One, his feelings had nothing to do with whether he'd go to the cross or not. It had nothing to do with his feelings towards the cross. Secondly, it had nothing to do with our behavior, our past treatment of him. Nothing to do with those things. It was not conditioned upon that. If it was conditioned upon how he felt, we would have never been reconciled to God. If it was conditioned upon our past treatment of him, we would have never been reconciled to God. Let's look at this a little in more detail. You know, listen to the description that God gives of us in Romans 5, 6 to 10. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will ever hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Listen, when Christ gave himself up for us, we were described by four four words. We were described as being helpless. We were described as being ungodly. We were described as being sinners and enemies to the cross. That's the way God describes us. And he gave himself up unconditionally, despite that we are titled that. He didn't say, Christ died for you when you cleaned up your own act and started to behave differently. Then he considered the cross for you. He said, while you guys were, were messing around and, and uh, um, sinning like crazy against me, I loved you enough and gave myself up unconditionally, despite your treatment of me. Consider his feelings towards the cross. You know, people, I think, I don't know what it is, but we kind of think that Jesus went to the cross like he was going to Callaway Park in Calgary. Like he's hopping and skipping and eating popcorn all the way to, the, the, you know, to, to Golgotha. Listen, when you listen to John 12, 27, you're going to get a different picture of how Jesus felt. He said in John 12, 27, My soul has become troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That word troubled is um, the word to describe the disciples' fear when he was calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and he, the winds obeyed him and the seas obeyed him. And they were absolutely 
fearful and stricken with panic because of the what witnessing the storm being calmed by Jesus. That's the kind of trouble that he's talking about when he says, save me from this hour. Like, I don't, this cross is coming. What shall I say? Can you do something about this? How about in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the Gospels? He's sweating drops of blood. He even says, if you're willing, take this cup from me. And he makes this comment, the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. You see, there's this clear emotional battle going on inside for him having to love us. Yet despite every fiber in his being, screaming inside to walk away from God's purposes and plans for his life, in an act of the will, over and above his feelings, he went to the cross and died for us. And that's what we have to do with our wives. And for you guys who are single, when you enter in a dating relationship, you're to start practicing this kind of self-sacrificial, unconditional love. And I don't know about you, but this is extremely convicting for me. I mean, again, you single guys are going to find out this one day, but there are times in your marriage when your very lovely wife will become very unlovable. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> the smart, the smart guy have been around a while are doing this. <laughs> yeah. Right? I know, no, I'm not saying that marriage isn't fantastic and marriage isn't fun and fulfilling. Of course it is, but it's also a lot of hard work. Now here's the thing, I don't know about you, but for me it's no problem to be self-sacrificial in my love and unconditional in my love when things are going well. When she's treating me well, when she's speaking to me nicely, when she's being respectful and we're having lots of fun and laughter, it is so easy to lay down my life for a woman like that. But as, you know, again, I have a fantastic marriage, but we're not perfect in our marriage either. And so Janice does have her moments too where that's not the case. Sometimes she's sharp with her tongue. Sometimes she might be a little upset and frustrated with me or different situations, and she might take it out on me. And what is my tendency? As a man, my flesh says, you deserve to punish. You deserve to make this right. She has to pay for what she's doing, and you need to stop loving her. You need to make her pay and teach her by being conditional in your love. And when she sees that conditional love, she'll smarten up and she'll come around. The problem with this is that is not what Christ modeled to us. And that is not what Paul is asking of us here. Not only this, Jesus had something to say about conditional love as a Christian in Luke 6. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them back. <laughs> but love your enemies and do good to them, and expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, for God himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. You see, men... If there's no room in God's kingdom for conditional love and towards our enemies, there's no way he's going to let us get away with conditional love with our wives. What is the passage? Luke 6. Luke 6. Luke 6. Right? If, you're not going to, if you have to love your enemies unconditionally, you are going to have to, no doubt, love your wives unconditionally. And if we can learn anything from Jesus here, that loving unconditionally is really an act of the will in obedience to the Father. It has nothing to do with how you feel. It has nothing to do with how you've been treated. It's an act of the will in obedience to the Lord. And your flesh inside will say, don't, don't, don't. She doesn't deserve it. It's, even if, and especially when you go through long cycles, 
it's okay if it happens like you know it's easier in a, in a moment like you know one bad conversation in the car but if you go for some of us have experienced cycles in marriage where you've had two three weeks where it's been frustrating and it's two three weeks of disrespect and frustration and you just want to shut down and God says you can't you can't remember me just as I loved you you love your wives Now, when you and I think about the purposes behind Christ's love for us, we often think he died for our service, to, to save us, right? To reconcile us to God. And often that's what we primarily think about, the purpose for why Jesus came. But Paul here in verse 26 reminds us of another reason why Jesus came. Look at verse 26 and 27 with me. He said, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. <clears throat> you see, the purpose in Jesus coming here was not just to save us and leave us at the cross to fend for ourselves. Like he didn't say, Drew, like, hey, buddy, your sins are forgiven. Now, best of luck in the future. Hope you persevere in your walk in this world, and hopefully I'll see you in glory. He doesn't do that here. What we see in these verses, in, in the purpose of his laying down his life, was not only for our justification, but for our sanctification. And, and Dr. Kopich mentioned this today in his, in his message this morning. This purpose of being sanctified is to be set apart for God's service, for his purposes, for her, his work, to be, to be consecrated, to be made holy. So the purpose in Christ um, sacrificing himself was not only for our justification, but to sanctify us, to, to set us apart for God's purposes and work. You see, he didn't come to just save us and leave us as spiritual infants, but to walk with us through life, and in this process help us mature through the agency of God's Word. The God's Word is the, is the means by which this sanctification occurs. But we see here that his goal is not only maturity for us, but our purity. He picked it up in verse 27. He said, He might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You notice that um, holy and blameless here is in contrast to spot or wrinkle, having no spot or wrinkle. So if that's a contrast, then we can, we can define spot and wrinkle as having to do with morality, to being free of sin and anything impure in our lives. So his goal is not only our maturity through the Word of God, but that the Word of God would produce a purity in us, a holiness and a blamelessness. You see, it's clear here that Jesus is interested in a relationship beyond the cross and is genuinely concerned for our well-being. He cares about our character. And he, he wants a, our, a, us as a bride to look a certain way. He doesn't want just the bride, he doesn't want the bride of Frankenstein. He wants the, a bride that's beautiful, that's radiant and glorious. And he want, and, the, and the God's word is doing his work in us to bring these mature, this maturity and purity out in us. And as a principle we can take away from this. You see, I think, man, there are times when you and I can take our marriages for granted. And even if you're in a dating relationship, you, you, after a while, if you've been dating for a while, you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, I've already got her, I've already caught her, I've won her affection, so I'm just going to stop, stop doing the very things that won her attention in the first place. And over time, we can get lazy, and we kind of have the attitude like, well, you know I love you, I married you, didn't I? <laughs> right? That's often like how we can, we can sometimes think. <laughs> but what we learn from Christ here is that right up to our last breath, 
From to the day, from the day we are saved to the day we are we die, he's investing in our lives, and that's a genuine concern for our moral and spiritual well-being. And men, we have to invest in our wives and care for her moral and spiritual well-being, not only from the day of marriage, but to the day that she breathes her last breath. And we need to lead our homes in a way that sets the table for this. Uh, when I uh, first had my boys, I have three boys, six, four, and two. Prior to my marriage and the, the oh, sorry, prior to the birth of the, my kids, my wife Janice had a, a strong devotional life. She would get up before she was a school teacher. She'd get up before work and she would um, get up and study and she'd read the Word of God and pray. And I'd be still sleeping and and I'd get up a little bit later because I wasn't a morning person. I've never been a morning person. I've, I'll never will be. It's just the way I'm wired. The houseboat's challenging for a guy like me. <laughs> so, so she has this. We have we have the three boys, and they're high high energy and a lot of work. Especially in the last couple of years, I've heard Janice complain not complain but cry out to me a lot that she just feels spiritually disconnected. She's like Andrew. I just have nothing going on in my devotional life. Uh, I just feel so distant from God, and what mm -hmm. feeds me is time in the Word and prayer. And she says because of the way our church is structured too, like. Uh, I've been missing a lot of services because I'm always taking care of the kids and so I'm missing out not only on Sundays I'm also missing out throughout the week and I'm just like wilting like a flower and she's been saying this for a long time but it's, it's been about two year process and I was thinking about we came up with different strategies to try to help her and nothing worked nothing worked at the same time we were dealing with another issue uh, my wife and I um, were dealing with our boys and we had sort of different ways of handling the boys and I wanted her to handle the boys a certain way in terms of raising them and she wanted to she was struggling with raising them the way I wanted them to go and so we had this other contentious issue so we had her spiritual wilting and we had this sort of this constant sort of mini tension between how to raise our boys this is going on, this has been going on for about two three years but I was kind of always at a loss about how to do this so I kind of came up with these plans in my head about how I was going to like try to become forceful to like, like more, more put my foot down to get, get my point across with the kids. And didn't really have a plan for her with the spiritual life so much. And uh, I was, ha I was going to put this plan in place, and then I don't know if it was the Lord bringing this to me or, 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 or however He did it doesn't matter. It was just an amazing thing. He said, Andrew, perfect fear, sorry, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Before you carry out your plans about about being more aggressive and trying to like get your wife to come to your side why don't you first of all love her perfectly first? So I was thinking, well, how am I going to do that? A couple days later, I'm in Tim Hortons having a, a Bible study with Blake, and this man's watching us. He's watching our study. Blake leaves, and he comes up to me and says, oh, I hear, see, we see you're studying with a young fellow with the Word of God. And I said, yeah, what do you do? He's like, I'm a pastor. He said, I said, what do you do? He goes, I'm a pastor. Next question. He goes, oh, yeah, you're a pastor. Yeah, how's your spiritual life, your own devotional life with the Lord? I said, uh, good, pretty good, yeah. And then second question, how is it with your wife? I sound like uh, what's a porky pig on the. <laughs> I was like, uh, I, I said, well, she does her own thing and I do my own thing, and you know that's just the way it works. But I kind of want to do more for her, but I can't. And, and he was just, I like gave him a lame answer, right? He says, I'll tell you what. He goes. You get that sorted out with your wife. You do just one-on-one -on -one time with her, and I guarantee you she'll change. Her. She'll change. 
I said, okay, I went home. I said, honey, I met into this guy and here's what I want to do. Uh, I want to start doing devotionals with you one-on-one -on -one, or one -on like two of us together. And we discussed it. The only time that would work was first thing in the morning at 6.30. <laughs> Mr. Morning Person. And I said, okay, I'll do it. I said, we're going to get up at 6.30, study for one hour, and we'll do this together. So I took a personal hit, self-sacrifice towards her to do this. We've been doing it for four months. Four months now, we've only missed a few days from sleeping in and different things. Four months. She has completely revolutionized her attitude in the home, and uh, she is not wilting anymore. She's totally flourishing. Our marriage has been the best it's been in four months, and this four months has been the best it's been in years, even, even though it wasn't bad before. And her issue with my children has reduced by about 75%, and we've never addressed the issue once. Six years of having children, sort of loggerheads over how to raise them, four months of personal time investing in her well-being on her terms and the issues almost negligent with her boys. I mean, praise God. So, yeah, it's exciting for me. <laughs> the cool thing is, again, this man put a personal challenge into my life to do something and, there, and I took him for granted. And I'm not saying that I'm anything special. All I had to do was get up in the morning. <laughs> the Word of God did its work. It sanctified my wife. It made her pure and holy and a beautiful bride to the Lord. It's still making her that way. Another key thing for me, though, is because I'm a teacher and I'm always in a teaching position, it's very easy for me to take the teaching role in that thing. So when I do that study with her, it's all on her terms. She picks the book. She picks how fast we want to go through it. She gives observations. I give observations. I don't teach her. We let the Lord just speak to us both, and we share equally in those times. Now, I'm not saying that this is you have to do this with your wife. I'm not saying this. But if you are in the same position as me, maybe there's an issue in your marriage where you haven't been able to overcome for a long time. Maybe there's a place where you guys have, even if it's, there's not a particular issue, but there's been multiple issues and you're having a struggle right now, I'd encourage you to maybe try this with your wife. And I bet you, well, I can guarantee you, there'll be a change in your wife in the next few months. God says in his word, He'll sanctify her, he'll cleanse her, he'll wash her with the word, and he'll present her holy and blameless. Well, Paul further illustrates this point in verses 28 to 30 about showing a genuine concern for a wife's well-being. He says, So husbands ought to also love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. The word nourish means to feed or promote strength or health. And the word cherish is to impart warmth or care or comfort. When you understand the words in this way, the analogy of Paul makes a lot of sense. A husband is to take care of his wife with the same care and devotion that he would give himself. He's to devote care and concern to her, to, to his wife, the same way he would himself. Not a lesser standard, but of equal standard or more. And I just couldn't get this picture out of my head. I don't know what it was, probably living, reliving my teens, but I couldn't help getting this analogy of what this might look like in, the, in a practical sense. 
And I was thinking about you young men, these teenager guys here. I was thinking about you guys in front of a mirror before you go out in an evening. I was thinking about how much time it would take you guys to probably get ready, right? Checking out the hair, getting the curls perfect, turning to the left, getting the curl perfect, the right curl perfect, maybe flexing the biceps in a quick six-pack pose. Do some arm curls. Arm curls, yeah, a few push-ups, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's right. Totally. Never did that. <laughs> <laughs> Never did that. Yeah. Right? Just all this, look, making sure everything is just right. And uh, But you guys will put a lot of time and effort into like admir self-admiration and self-concern because you want to make sure that you're giving yourself the best. Well, with that picture in mind, this is exactly what, what, what God is telling us to do as husbands and, uh, and as men towards women we're going to marry in the future. He's saying, I want to give you the same, I want you to give the same admiration and devotion you'd give yourself in front of a mirror, getting ready for a night out, as you would to your wife or your girlfriend. And it's interesting what he says about that. If you do that, he says here, if you succeed in doing this, he says that you are one who loves, that, so that you show love for yourself. Look in verse 28. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. So a man who does this for his wife actually shows love for himself. But the opposite is true. If a man doesn't do this, if he doesn't show admiration or, or, or affirmation for his wife, he actually demonstrates lack of love for himself. So failure to love and cherish your, nourish and cherish your wife is like a self-suicide. It's like a little mini self-suicide. If you don't do this, you actually, just, like it's, it hurts you. It hurts her, it hurts you. And this, that saying, a happy wife is a happy life, isn't too far from the truth, is it? If you nourish and cherish, she is fulfilled and you're actually doing, you're doing well for yourself when you do that. The problem with nourishing and cherishing, though, is that that's something that not all of us always understand how to do. As men, we often think of loving and or nourishing and cherishing as being a good provider. Now, this is no this is an old joke. Most of my conversations with men, when I talk about nourishing and cherishing, it always comes down to money, how they're doing financially in the home. That's my experience. I'm not saying that, that not, I'm not saying men don't know how. I'm just saying my experience is that, that that's the number one thought. A conversation goes something like this. Well, I don't, I, like, how's things going in marriage? Well, it kinda, it's kind of rough right now. Really? Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with my wife. Like, I don't get it. Like, she's got a roof over her head. She's never hungry. She's got beautiful clothes. She's got two cars in the driveway. The kids are always happy in activities. She should feel lucky because she's married to me because, I mean, lots of women would like to have the life she does. That's the kind of things, I mean, that's, that's not made up. That's, these are the kind of conversations I have. It's a, being a good provider that's key to the family. You know what the problem with that is? First Timothy, you're only doing the minimum job God requires of you if you're a good provider. You're doing the minimum. First Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially his own household, he's denied the faith and worse off than an unbeliever. So the husband will often think, I'm a good provider, therefore I must, I'm showing good love, or I'm showing love for my wife. And God's saying, well, it's part of showing love for your wife, but actually you're just doing the very minimum I've asked you to do. In fact, if you don't do that, you're worse off than an unbeliever. But again, husbands make this their primary measurement stick, I think, a lot for nourishing and cherishing. And this is, again, it's dangerous to use always and always type language, like always, in, because it's, um, it lumps, uh, 
put everything into one <laughs> into one category. But I, I mean this. All, I mean this. I've never and always had this experience. <laughs> In my experience of counseling, I've never met a woman whose fundamental pain in a marriage stemmed from the fact that their clothes weren't nice enough, they were unhappy with the home that they were provided with, they had lack of vacations, lack of activities for the kids. Every time I've talked to women, their number one problem is they're emotionally bankrupt. They're hurt because they feel distant from their husbands. And they don't want more stuff, they want more of you. Now because nourishing and cherishing them is so practically important and women by nature know what that is, it should probably be good for us to talk about what nourishing and cherishing looks like. I've given maybe about seven or eight ideas here. These are, this is not extensive, not, uh, there's probably hundreds you could, you could write, but these are just a few ideas I thought of about how to nourish and cherish a wife. Leaving notes for her uh, before you leave for work how much you appreciate her, how much you love her, those kind of things. During work, sending a text message of appreciation for who she is. Not what she looks like. Don't focus on the physical attraction. Something character-wise. Something character-wise, leaving a text message or a note. Another way to do it is initiate conversation. Be the initiator of conversation. Men talk less than women, we all know that, as a general rule, not always. Uh, I'm, my wife and I are reverse. I talk more than her. Um, but initiate conversation. And when you're in the conversation, actually listen to her. Don't look at your phone and get distracted by Kijiji and Netflix and the, 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 the sports in the corner on the TV. And when she presents a problem, don't try to fix it. Don't try to fix it. <laughs> men, we like to fix things. We, when I go to a man, I ask them to help me because I want an answer. I want a solution. Women don't want solutions all the time. They want you to be heard. Dang it. <laughs> right, but we come at them like that. I've actually, I've, I, I have a one-liner I use in my marriage that I don't use anymore because we've gotten past this. But initially, when she talked to me, I'd say, honey, do you want me to fix this or just listen? <laughs> And then she'd tell me, listen, or fix, or listen, or fix, it was perfect, because then I knew exactly where I stood. <laughs> Saying I love you on a regular basis. On a regular basis. A woman goes to the grave for asking one fundamental question, in my opinion, not in the Bible, <laughs> but in my opinion, she asks, she asks one question. She'll go to the grave asking, am I lovable enough? Am I lovable enough? You don't, you don't, again, you don't say, well, I told you on our wedding day that I loved you, and I told you on Valentine's I loved you. No, she wants to hear it every day. She doesn't get tired of that. Another way you can show nourishing and cherishing is plan activities. Be the planner. Listen, as a, a, our wives, especially in the children phase, they have, with kids, they, they're used to planning, organizing. That's what they do. We often don't because we work a lot, and then we come home and we do very, and then we just sort of like um, don't take initiative. Take initiative in planning activities, but make sure that's her interests, not yours. Listen, honey, guess what? We're going to the Calgary Flames tonight to watch a game. Oh, yippee. Well, no, I'm, I love you. I want to take you to the game. Like, it's nice there and everything. It's like, I don't care about the Calgary Flames. What about the car show? <laughs> the car show. Right? I know exactly what, would, would, what my wife would not want to do with me. I know exactly what. That's not taking her on my interests. You do, you do it on her interests. 
But here's the thing, when you go out with her on her interest, never use a sarcastic comment. Don't make a sarcastic comment about, oh, this is sure fun. <laughs> and never complain. As soon as you do that, I don't care if you spent $500 in that night, as soon as you make one comment of sarcasm or complaint, the night's over. It's not self-sacrificial and it's not unconditional anymore. It's on your terms because you let her know that. You just heard about this from somewhere else. <laughs> I have no experience in this. This is just a... <laughs> yeah, totally. How about your mindset in coming home from work? Here's your, mind, here's your mindset. If, if you're like me, this is your mindset. Well, I've put in an 8, 10, 12 hour day. I've worked really hard. I, I need to go home and I deserve to relax and just check out and lay around. Your wife is thinking, I can't wait for my husband to come home because I've been working so hard for 8, 10, 12 hours as well and I can't wait for it to lay down the couch as well. Your, your attitude is, I'm going to check out when I get home. Her attitude is, yay, my husband's going to check in. And what do we do? We often check out. We often check out and we're uninvolved in our family's lives. And the wife is left to take control. If you have young kids, offer to put the kids to bed alone so that she could go out for a bath, go, go out for a walk or go have a bath or go out with friends. For some reason, again, I think husbands often think that the putting bedtime is for the moms, for the moms and not for the dads. Listen, you, where in the Bible does it say that you aren't to be a parent in that area? <laughs> Offered to say to your wife, listen, you, I'll put the bed, kids, biz, uh, kids to bed tonight alone. You go out and do whatever you like. It's not only good for sorry to it, but it's big value for the kids too. Totally. Yeah, I know there's nothing more thrilling than to snuggle up to my dad and listen to him reading a story in his deep, fast voice. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> we'll have some good dialogue here. <laughs> Here's another one. Protect her emotionally. Okay, let's say um, get involved in her emotional pain, protect her. I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say uh, she's the one who signed up the house on the ACCO bill or EPCOR and there's a dispute over a bill. And she comes to you and talks about how she's having problems with a certain um, um, accountant or rep, rep for these companies. And she's going back and forth. Take the reins, make that phone call, take the hit for her, get involved. Don't let her fend for herself on these things. If she has an issue with, uh, say, a mechanic at a, at a, at a store or, a, or a, you know, a car place, like just go in and, and take the emotional hit for her on her terms, on your terms. Two others. A big one, though. Be generous <clears throat> with the way you handle money in the home. You see, men have no problem in putting a lot of cash into their interests, but they're often tight when it comes to their wife wanting to spend money on theirs. I bet you never ask the question, hmm, can I go golfing tonight? hundred bucks, gone. Your wife comes to you and says, the kids have no shoes for school and uh, they're, they're about $75. And you're like, oh, I don't know, $75 for shoes? Oh, I don't know. hundred bucks in golf, over in four hours. The kid's gonna wear shoes for four months. No, that's supposed to be. <laughs> 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 right? Well, I get, yeah. Right? Or you, you'll go, you'll, you'll have no problem buying a shirt and tie for work, right? Because you need to, you go to the bay and get a nice Hugo Boss shirt and a nice tie. And your wife wants to buy a dress for like a wedding that we have to go to. And you're like, I don't know, honey, like which ones, you know, there's two and one's a hundred bucks and one's 500 bucks. It's like, oh, I'll go for the hundred dollar dress. But maybe your, maybe your shirt and tie cost $200. 
again, we our wives know when you're free with your money and when you're tight with her in the cash. And they feel it. Because they're afraid to make any purchase in the home because they know that you're going to come down on them. That's not nourishing and cherishing. But here's the biggest one. Learn to give physical affection without any expectation of sex. <coughs> Sorry. Just for the record, that was Tori Carlson. <laughs> no, it wasn't. You can go up to your wife while she's cooking in the dinner and you come home and you can go up to her and you can give her a hug in the kitchen and say I love you and walk away. You can, When she's reading a book on the chair, you can walk up to her, put your hand on her shoulder and just say, hey honey, how you doing today? Just want to know I love you. Right? You can give her a kiss in the neck and do all these things. But again, as soon as you make a sexual joke, even in the hug, like you joke and then you make a sarcastic thing, comment about how she looks or this sort of hint hint about later on, you wrecked it. You wrecked it. Because you're not doing it for her best interest. She knows you want something from her. Learn to give physical affection without any expectation of return. I mean, these are just a number of things, but these, are, these things speak spades to winning your wife's affection. Notice none of them have to do with providing for her. None of them. If you want help in this area, ask your wife. She'll know. <laughs> She'll know. But here's one more key thing, boys. You can't just do these things three times a year. right? You can't just be nourishing and cherishing on Valentine's Day, Christmas, and her birthday. And anniversary. And anniversary. Four. four. <laughs> you can't expect her to feel loved only doing those things four days a year. This is a daily commitment as men. Daily commitment. Let me, let me put it in reverse to you. This might speak stronger to you. You know how much you want your wife to respect you, right? You know how much you desire respect in your, in your home. And that's why Paul says in verse 3, husband, or wives respect your husband. What if you, your wife only respected you on your birthday, anniversary, Christmas, and Valentine's? And then she treated you with disrespect the rest of the year for 361 days. How would you feel in the marriage? Yet, we take this approach as men often. Well, what's wrong with you? I gave you a wonderful Valentine's Day. I gave you a wicked Christmas present. I took you on a romantic getaway on our anniversary. Don't you feel loved? Don't you, well, why don't you feel respected? Why wouldn't you feel respected if she only respected you four days a year? All of you want respect. You'd rather have 361 days of respect and her miss disrespect you on your birthday, anniversary, and Christmas than you would the reverse. And yet as husbands, we don't do that, typically. That's the general rule. I'm not, I'm not saying we're, we're all at different sort of levels in our marriages in terms of how we're operating. Nourishing and cherishing is to be respect is a daily commitment, just like respect is a daily commitment for, her, for our wives. They need to feel like treasures. They need to feel like treasures, and it's the little consistent things that will win the affection of our wives. And that's why nourishing and cherishing are simple in word, but profound in impact. So Paul's made it clear. You're to see your wife as, as not independent from you. You're to see them as being 
uh, as one with you, and how you treat them will definitely impact you as a husband as well. So with this thought in mind then, he substantiates it further with, through 31 and 32. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become, the two shall become one flesh. But this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. I find this a really interesting verse. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church after he's made the comparison of a one flesh union between husband and wife. I was thinking about this more and more and more, and then the Lord brought a verse to me. I want to show you a comparison between Christ and the, Christ's relationship to the church and how it relates to a husband's uh, relationship to his wife in terms of the one flesh union. There's no greater illustration to me than Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 8 and 9. It's actually in Acts, not 9-4, but it starts in 8 where we see Paul introduced as a persecutor of the church. So Paul, he's going into uh, the church in Jerusalem and different areas and he's heading to Damascus in Acts chapter 9-4. He's ripping people out of their homes, he's throwing them in jail, and he's even murdered some on behalf of following God. Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus and says what? Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why didn't he say, why are you persecuting Johanna? Why, are you why aren't you persecuting uh, Abraham, Moses, John, like whatever, whatever, you know, Josiah, why aren't you persecuting them? Because Jesus understood there's a one flesh union between himself and us, the believer. So much so that if you touch a believer, you touch Jesus Christ. That's how intimate the connection is between God. When he gives us a spirit, he says, I'm so intimately connected to you, I see you as one flesh. If anyone hurts you, they're hurting me. And he says to Paul, you're hurting me when you're touching one of mine. Isn't that a, p a powerful illustration when you think about how he sees the marriage? And if you actually believe that, when Paul heard that and he believed it, it must have been terrifying for him. Yeah, we can talk about that in the dialogue if you like, because I have some thoughts on that for sure. But here's what Jesus is teaching Paul. There's a oneness there which can't be, which can't be separated. And there's an experience with me that if anyone touches you, it cannot be without impacting the other. And this is how we're to see our wives in terms of our, our one flesh union. See, even when you and I are separate from our wives, I mean, you single men who are going to get married one day, when you are separate from your wives and in, acting independently of them outside the home, God still sees you as, the, as, to, as joined as one. You're still, you're still um, impacting her depending on the decisions that you make. The decisions you make independently and privately of her affect your wife. When you love and care for your wife, you will benefit yourself, and when you neglect and hurt your wife, you will hurt yourself. The decisions you make in private are going to make a big difference to how you impact your wife. If you hurt, if you do something silly, it affects her. You're one flesh. You can't get away from it. Now, why would this matter? That means, men, if you have unforgiveness in your life to someone else outside of your wife, if you have unforgiveness towards an uncle, an aunt, a parent, a coach, or maybe even to your wife, that will not, not impact her. 
your unforgiveness will affect her. Likely because unforgiveness usually end up becoming bitter and angry. And you will take it out on the marriage and she'll have no idea where that anger came from and it's because of unforgiveness. That means, man, when you tell lies in your, in your marriage, you impact her. Hey, honey, what time are you coming home? I'm just going out with some friends right now, uh, which you may not be. Or what time do you think you'll be home? Well, you know, you kind of make up a story about how you're, when time you're coming home because you don't want to get into that, an argument on the phone. Or she asks you specific questions about anything in your life and you kind of exaggerate truth and you make up lies. When you lie, you impact your marriage. When you come home and you face her and you're one-on-one, it's going to impact and affect her even though she has no idea that you lied to her. You see now the devastation that pornography causes? See, the lie with pornography is this. It's only going to impact me. It only is going to impact me. It's not going to hurt her. She'll never know about it. Not according to Paul. Not according to Paul. You're a one flesh union. If you hurt, if you look at porn and you hurt yourself, you will hurt your wife. You hurt your wife. That affects her greatly. And I and I speak to you single men especially too. Because you might think, well, I'm not even married yet, so it doesn't matter to me. If you mess around with that stuff, you are going to bring that into your marriage, even though she'll have no idea about it. And let me ask you single men a question. You have two choices for men. So let's say you grow up and you're 40 like me, and you have, uh, t- or you're 30, whatever, and you have two daughters, and, and you have two daughters as, 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 your, as, your, as your own, and... God supernaturally reveals to you that there's two men that she could possibly marry and you know one has got pornography in his life and one doesn't. Which one do you want your daughter to marry? Right? You want, I know which one you want them to marry. So then why would you want to in your own life with that attitude towards your own daughters want to do that to someone else's daughter? You are one flesh with that woman and whatever you do now and what you're going to do in the future will impact your wife. So I don't know where you're at in your marriage right now, or if you're dating someone where you're at in terms of a potential future partner. But wherever you're at, I just want the Word of God to speak to you today and to uh, rebuke where necessary, convict where necessary, correct where necessary, and, and encourage where necessary. And I don't know if some of you came in here in a good place and you're happy with where you're at, or some of you came in a rough patch. But I just pray that the the word of the Lord uh, has done some work in your life tonight. And let's just do a few lessons together as we uh, close. So here's the first lesson I want you to take away. I got five. We won't spend a lot of time on them. Five lessons. And if, I'll go through them quick. If you, I'll give them to you later if you can't write them down quick enough, okay? First lesson. A husband must be self-sacrificial. Or let me start over, sorry. I'll, start, I'll say, say this first. The husband is to love his wife like Christ loves his church. That's the first statement, okay? So for the husband to love his wife like Christ loves his church, a husband must be self-sacrificial, putting his wife's needs, interests, and desires ahead of his own. A husband must be self-sacrificial by putting his wife's needs, interests, and desires ahead of his own. 
sometimes as husbands we don't know it's not that we don't want to do that we just don't know how to again love is not natural to us that's why God Paul has to tell us three times to do it <laughs> okay we don't know how to do that women do we don't typically unless we've been trained right from the beginning we're usually not so we have to learn this so if you just if you want ways to learn how to do that then I would suggest asking her you've married a unique individual she won't be like every other woman ask her which ways in which ways and you be and you might be surprised at what she says second lesson for the husband to love his wife like Christ loved his church a husband must love his wife unconditionally which in many instances will require a decision in obedience to Christ a husband must love his wife unconditionally which in many instances will require a decision in obedience to Christ there will be times when you don't feel like it you won't feel like it her treatment of you will, will not warrant it even and God might even be in favor of, in terms of like saying, seeing that she's in sin but that doesn't matter You're not, you can't conditionally treat her any different there will be times when you want to be lazy and, you, and you're not going to want to do anything because you're, you feel tired or justified in not doing anything again, you can't neglect your role it's to be unconditional third lesson for the husband to love his wife like Christ loved his church a husband must show genuine concern for his wife's well-being and seek to be an influence in her spiritual growth and development a husband to show genuine concern for his wife's well-being and seek to be an influence in her spiritual growth and development remember Jesus died uh, purpose in 26 so that he might sanctify her cleansing her by the word that she be holy and blameless he didn't die to ditch her at the cross, die, die to ditches at the cross, but to continue in relationship. We are to do the same. We can work in our we can work in our wives' lives so that she will become mature and pure. Wouldn't it be cool and glory if this was a scene? Your wife comes up to God and she's going to just about it to enter heaven. And God says, let's just use Abilene, Jeff's wife, okay? Abilene, you're going into heaven today to be with me. But before you do, I want to have say something to your husband, Jeff. And Jeff, come here. And Jeff comes up before God. And Jeff says this, you know, Abilene has been a woman of strong character ever since, even before she met you. And she's been a woman that I've had my eye on and I've appreciated her faith even before she met you. But Jeff, she has completely radically changed because of your influence in her life. She's, she was mature before, but your influence has brought her to a whole new level of holiness, holiness and blamelessness that I would not be possible without your influence. If she stayed single and never got married, she would have never reached this level of maturity and holiness. But because of you, she is going to go into glory, a pure bride who's just beautiful in all her glory. Wouldn't that be a fantastic testimony to you as a man? For God to say that to you? That's what we're talking about here. Fourth lesson, a husband must take care, take into consideration all the decisions he makes independent of his wife. A husband must take into consideration all the decisions he makes independent of his, life, of his wife, knowing that ultimately they will, his decisions will affect her. That's the one flesh union. You, make, you carefully consider what you're going to think and act out and do knowing that it's impacting her even if she doesn't even know about it. 
There's no in, you destroy intimacy. You destroy intimacy when you're hiding and lying behind your wife and she doesn't know because she thinks everything's fine, but there's a barrier. There's a natural barrier when, when you're up to no good behind, without her knowing. And the last lesson, for a husband to love his wife like Christ loved the church, a husband must provide his wife, pro, uh, sorry, a husband must provide his wife with the same affection and admiration as he would himself. A husband must provide his wife with the same affection and admiration as he would himself. That's nourishing and cherishing your wife. You know, if I were to ask this question to you single guys, even to take your even your relationship to your mom or to your sister or to, to you know, even the girl you're dating now or into the married men, would you take a bullet for a woman or for your, 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 your wife? Would you die for your wife and take a bullet for her? I think every single one in here would say, I would lay my life down for my wife. I take a bullet for her. You know why we say that? Because as men, it's natural to want to be the hero. It's important and impressive to, to, to be a martyr for big things. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to lay our down, a life down in the little things? It's the little things in laying down your life that wins your wife's affection, not the big things. Every man, even if he's a tyrant, will take a bullet for his wife. But, the, but these women are emotionally bankrupt and starving for affection and attention. It's the little things in laying down your life that you need to do to win her. And that's the way you loved you, the way you'd model Christ and his love for us. Christ loves us unconditionally and self-sacrificially. And he nourishes and cherishes us because we are members of his body, verse 30. Well, there's much more that could be said, but let's have a ton of dialogue and uh, how we just... Uh